today I'm going to pick up, this is the second week of a series we're calling Love, Marriage, Baby Carriage. And uh, life doesn't always work out that way. Many of you have different stories, but I just want to say at the onset of this message, whether you are married or, or maybe you're engaged to be married or maybe you're divorced or maybe you're widowed or a widower or you're just single and ready to mingle, I don't know where you fall. Or maybe for you it's complicated is the most appropriate selection they ever made on social media. Like, yes, that is my life. It's complicated. If that's you... I just want you to know, I believe this message is going to speak to you regardless of where you stand in your relationship status. And here's why. Because marriage is a message that points to Jesus. Maybe you go, eh, not the marriages I've seen. But listen, marriage is a message designed by God to point back to Jesus. And so I believe if we'll look at it through that lens today, this word is going to encourage you. But here's something I've noticed in over 20 years of ministry. Nobody schedules appointments with me for marital counseling except for in two situations. When they're ready to start or when they're ready to part. Nobody comes in for a tune-up. Like nobody says like, hey, things are awesome. We just thought maybe we'd sit down and talk about our marriage with you for a little bit. That doesn't happen. But how many of you know that prevention is the best medicine? Preventative care, so I didn't wait for you to schedule the appointment. Just welcome to the counseling session today. Welcome to the couch. That's my plan. I just want to share the word with you, and I believe it's going to speak to our lives. And I want you to open to the book of Ephesians if you have your Bible today. If not, we'll put these verses up on the screen, but I want you to really focus in with me on what the Apostle Paul said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about marriage. Last week we began, I shared a verse last week out of Hebrews 13.4 that says marriage should be honored by all. That's not just something that the Bible says for married people. It's something that it says for people, people. (laughs) Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure. So I want to encourage today, uh, if I can champion anything, I'll be that guy in this generation, in this culture, to be the advocate for marriage. Before we get into what the Apostle Paul said, can I just do that? Because, you know, statistically we know that people are waiting later and later to get married. Not all of them, you know, took the path like Day and I. We were 19. We weren't in kindergarten. But we might as well have been if you see my wedding pictures. They look like I was in kindergarten. But we got married at 19 years old. Statistically, people are waiting later and later to get married. Yeah, you guys were in that camp too. And... The reality is people are waiting later. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that, except for part of the reason people are waiting later and later is because it is becoming more and more commonplace in our culture to just live together, to cohabitate, to to live as if we were married without the commitment, without the covenant, without the ring. And I want to just encourage all of you towards marriage if you're in that place. Now, marriage isn't for everybody. We talked about it last week. Singleness is, is a gift. God has a plan for each person's life. But I just want to be that voice in your life, lest you don't hear it anywhere else. That if you're living in a committed relationship and you're living as if you're married, go ahead and get married. And I'm going to tell you why. Because God's commanded blessing can be on your life. The Bible says in Psalms 133 in verse 1, it says how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in 
unity. And then at the very end of that short little chapter, he says these words. He says, for there the Lord commands his blessing. So there is a place where God commands blessing. And I'll tell you where it is. It's at the crosshairs. It's at the intersection of where you have unity with God and unity with each other. There's a lot of people that, that have unity with each other. Like the relationship's good. It's going great. Why mess up? Why fix it if it ain't broke, right? But they're not in unity with God's plan and God's will for your life. And so they don't have the commanded blessing of God on the relationship. There's others that they're, they're in right relationship with God. They feel like they're in unity with the Lord, except they haven't got things worked out with each other. And in either case, I want to tell you, there is a commanded blessing that God has for your life and my life when we align ourselves with his plan and purpose. I'm not saying you're not blessed at all if you're, not, if you're you know, in a relationship, you're living together, and you're not married. It's not that you're not blessed because, you know what, God's good. And even when we're not good, he's still good. And the Bible says he causes the sun and the rain to, to rise and to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. That means when the, the righteous Christian farmer prays for rain, it's probably going to rain on his neighbor's crops too. And so you're, get, you're just in the residual blessing of the goodness of God. I'm telling you there's more. There's more blessing when we align ourselves with the plan and purpose that God has. I haven't even got to Ephesians 5. I feel like I'm preaching already. Can we just stay here a minute? You know, the Bible says in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. And we love that verse, and Christians love to quote that verse. But don't miss the first part. He said, I know the plans I have for you. He's not really interested in the plans you have for you. He's blessing the plans he has for you. And so I want to just be that person in your life that says, you know what? We're going to be more blessed if we follow God's principles for a godly marriage. Go with me to Ephesians 5. I want to begin here in verse 21. But before we read it, I want to notice the subheading. And maybe your Bible doesn't have a subheading. Mine does. In fact, uh, Ephesians 5, 21, all the way to chapter 6 and verse 9 the heading in my Bible is this, Instructions for Christian Households. I don't know if yours says that. The headings aren't inspired. Neither are the chapter and verse divisions, by the way. Scribes wrote those in there later so that on Sunday morning when the pastor says turn to Ephesians 5, you could find it. Aren't you glad we're not unrolling scrolls? Like, spending the next hour like thank God they're in there but here's what can happen we can let those chapter and verse divisions which you know when Paul wrote the letter he didn't number his sentences you understand that right so what we can do is we can let those divide the thoughts to where we just read one verse because it's it's got a name and an address and we read that one verse and we don't read it in the context it was written and so I want to encourage you to know that 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 Paul wrote these things about Christian household, but we're going to have to go outside the, the constructs of what might be in your Bible of verse and section divisions, because there's a bigger thing that he's trying to say, and I don't want us to miss it. Martin Luther spoke about this portion of scripture, and he called it the, the haustoffel. It means the house table. Have you ever had a family meeting? You know, you bring everybody to the table, and you're like, okay, family, we got to get on the same page I got It's a come to Jesus meeting. That's what we call it in my house. Like, okay, this is how things are going to go in our house, the house table. That's what Martin Luther called this, and that's what Paul was essentially saying. He, he's he's unfolding what it means to be the body of Christ, and he gets to this section and he says, "This is the way it's supposed to look. 
in a Christian household. Look at verse 21. This is the key text. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, there's a lot. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, pull any punches here. I'm going to tell you right now before we read it, there's some verses in here that have tripped some people up. There's some verses in here that have caused some people to kind of recoil and second guess that maybe the Bible doesn't have the best plan for relationships. I just want you to know God's plan is the best plan. And if you're ever a person to underline a scripture or highlight one in your Bible, that's the one. Highlight that verse in your Bible. And if you're going to circle anything, circle these two words, out of. Out of. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because this is the formula that the Apostle Paul gives us for what it looks like to have a godly marriage. And in fact, if you read this in the original Greek language that it was written in, what you'll discover is that verse 21, not only is it not a verse, it's not even a sentence. It's the end of a really long sentence that begins in verse 18. So for all you English majors, I want you to just forget all that for a moment. And I know this is going to be hard. But we're going to read verse 18 to 21. And I want you to just imagine this as one cohesive thought. Here's what it says. Verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing. Make music from your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God the Father. To, uh, he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. All one big thought. And the, the emphasis of the whole statement is up in verse 18. Here's the emphasis. Be filled with the Spirit. He said, don't be drunk with wine. Instead, be, be, be drunk on Jesus. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, capital S. Not spirits, but the Spirit. And then, and then he says what it looks like when you're filled with the Spirit. Wow, we, we sing psalms, hymns, we encourage one another, we make music to the Lord, we give to the Father, we do all these things. And then here's the result of that action, verse 21. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here's what that passage tells me. Number one, it tells me that the motivating factor for my submission and my honor and my love for my wife is my reverence for Christ. The, the best husband you can be is the one who's radically in love and submitted to Jesus. The best wife you can be is the one who's radically in love and fully surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because my submission to my wife and her submission to me, it comes out of reverence for Christ. But the other thing this verse tells me is that the ability to do that, because it might preach well on Sunday, but Monday morning feels a little different when the alarm clock goes off. And my ability to do that flows out of the fullness of the spirit in my life. So he says, be filled with the Spirit, and out of our reverence for Christ, we're going to submit to one another. If you're going to understand God's plan for marriage, you got to understand that his, his assumption is, that the prerequisite is that everybody that comes to the table is filled with the Holy Spirit and submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If that part's not right, the rest is going to be problematic. And so he starts there. 
And then he begins to give instructions for husbands and for wives. And he begins with wives, so let's look at verse 22. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, can't you see how quickly, if we didn't start where we started, and we just picked out a verse, maybe the verse that's on the screen right now, you can see how problematic that would be, how contentious that would be, how quickly people would back up and go, well, you know what, I don't know about that whole scripture being authority thing. That doesn't sound too 21st century to me. But we understand the context of what Paul is saying is that both husband and wife are filled with the Holy Spirit and submitted to each other out of reverence for Christ. And so now he says this is what it looks like for wives. And then he's about to say what it looks like for husbands in a moment. But in this verse, I want you to understand, he's communicating that there is an ordered equality in marriage. There's an ordered equality. In other words, we're, we're all equal in God's eyes. Men are not up here, women down here, or vice versa. The Bible says in Genesis, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. Both equally created in his image. New Testament says in Christ, there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no slave, there's no free, there's no male, there's no female. There's, we're equal. Somebody say amen to that. All right, make sure I'm not scaring anybody off now, because listen, it's an ordered equality. See, equality of worth does not equal equality of role. And that's where our culture has gotten it all wrong. Hear that again. Equality of worth does not equal equality of role. And the example that Paul gives to say, well, what does that look like? He says, look at the church. Look at what Christ's relationship is with the church. When the church submits to Jesus Christ, it thrives. When the church submits to Jesus Christ, we're not restricted in our gifts. We're not restricted in our abilities. We're not restricted in our opportunities. We're actually empowered to use them. That's why we can confidently sing on a Sunday morning, I give myself away so you can use me. Because we know that God is not shackling us or clipping our wings. He's enabling us by the power of the Holy Spirit to live our best life. And, and so Paul says, that's actually what I'm talking about. That's how it looks for a wife who's submitted to a husband who understands that he has a God-given responsibility to lead his home. It doesn't mean that a wife is supposed to treat her husband like he's the savior of the world. What it does mean is when a wife is submitted to her husband's leadership in the home, it is as a service to the Lord. As you serve him as the Lord, it doesn't mean you serve him as Lord. It means your service to him is as if you were serving the Lord. It's what Paul said in Colossians when he said, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. And this works beautifully when both husband and wife are filled with the Spirit and submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so then he says, okay, well, what does it look like for husbands to love their wives? Look at the next verse with me, verse 25. It says, husbands... Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, the word love here is really important because we've done a great disservice to our translation into the American uh, English 
with the word love. Because we have one word that means love, and it's love. It doesn't matter if I'm saying I love my wife of 23 years or if I'm saying I love pizza. We got one word. How many of you know that that doesn't mean the same thing? It's not the same kind of love. And so the word here is, is a specific word. The word is agape. There's several words, and I won't take time to go through them, but I'll give you a couple examples. One of the words in the New Testament for love is phileo. It's where we get Philadelphia, you know, the city of brotherly love. That's what kind of love it is. It's a brotherly camaraderie, phileo. Sometimes the Bible uses the word eros, which is where we get the word erotic. It's a romantic love, different kind of love than brotherly love, amen? But this word is agape. It's a decision love. It's not a love you fall in. That's the world's language. I don't want, I don't want to have a relationship I fell in. I can fall out of it. Agape is decision love. Agape is a choice. Agape love is the father choosing to send the son to die for your sin before you loved him. Agape love is Jesus choosing to bear the weight of the cross for your sin and my sin even when we weren't seeking him. He decided it's a decision love. Love's not something you fall into. It's something you grow in. And he said a husband agapes his wife. The way that Christ agaped the church. And how did he do it? He gave himself up for her. Now, if you're not married, you're not looking to be married, maybe you've been married, tried that, not going back there. This is the part of the sermon that's for you. Because I want to show you five ways quickly that Christ loves the church. And everybody needs to meditate on the goodness of God and the love that he has for us this morning. So I just want to show you ways that Christ loves the church. Because Paul said, this is the gold standard. For a husband to love his wife. Number one, Jesus loves us willingly. Willingly. He willingly laid down his life. He said to his disciples, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. And if I, take, if I lay it down, I'll take it up again. He willingly died for us. In this letter of Ephesians, it actually opens in chapter 1 with the apostle Paul talking about the authority that God gave to Jesus. He said he gave him authority over powers, over rulers, over every other name. And he's just going on about the authority that Jesus has. But then in verse 22 of Ephesians 1, he says, And God placed all these things under Jesus' feet, and he appointed him to be head over everything for the church. This is so important, men. That we understand what headship looks like. Same letter, same writer. And he's pulling this thought. He starts in the beginning in chapter 1. And he says Jesus is the head over everything. But he's the head. Why? For the church. He's in in the authority for the church. And then he gets to chapter 5. And he says the husband is the head of the home. Why is the husband the head of the home? For his wife. For his bride. So this is not an authority over you. It's an authority for you. That's the blueprint that God gives. He said men are called to lead for his wife. Just like Christ has been given authority for the church. He loves us willingly. Secondly, he loves us prayerfully. This is good news. Jesus is praying for you. He he actually prays. For his bride, the church. 
Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Marriage tip. Before you call me and we spend 30 minutes talking about marriage, spend 30 minutes praying for your spouse. You'd be amazed at what the Holy Spirit will bring to light in your spirit when you just quiet your soul and bring your spouse before the Lord in prayer. And it's amazing. In 23 years of marriage, rarely does God give me revelation on what's wrong with her. Usually... Usually he shows me something I need to say, I need to do, I need to change. But if you will bring your spouse before the Lord in prayer, not saying, God, you got to fix that woman. No, but like really, I mean really bring the relationship to the Lord. He will. He will meet your needs. Jesus loves the church prayerfully. He loves the church attentively. Did you know he's attentive to her needs? He cares. I love this verse in 1 Peter 5, 7. It says, cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Whatever it is you're facing, whatever it is you're dealing with, even the, the, um, on the emotional level, just the, 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 the unresolved anxiety of our soul. He said you can, you can even bring that to him because he cares for you. In Luke Chapter 22, Jesus is with his disciples at the Last Supper, and, and the Bible says a dispute broke out between them about who is the greatest. You know, They're all like lobbying for positions in the kingdom. And Jesus begins to say, that's the way the Gentile rulers use their authority. They lord it over people, and they call themselves benefactors of those people that serve under them. And then he says this, in Luke chapter 22, in verse 26, he says, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. And then Jesus asked them this probing question. He said, who's greater, the person that's sitting at the table for dinner or the one who's serving the dinner? Who's greater? And they're like, well, it's the one, it's one that's sitting at the table. It's the VIP. It's, it's the person that's being served. And then he said, but look at me, guys. And in that moment, Jesus the Savior, the leader of our lives is kneeling down and he's washing their feet. And so can I say, men, you may be called to be the king of your own house, but you're a servant king. You're a basin and a towel king. You're a I'll help with the chores sometimes king. You know, you're, you're there to lead, but you're there to serve as a leader. Fourthly, here's how Jesus loves the church. He loves the church happily. In fact, he rejoices in your presence. God's not up in heaven going, oh, man, is it Sunday again? Oh, man. I got to go sit there and listen to these folks lie to me about how much they love me for an hour. No. He, he delights, he rejoices in us. Psalms 18, 19 says, he brought me into a spacious place. Some of you are like, not in the 10 a.m. service. <laughs> Ain't no space in here. But why? It says, because he rescued me. Because he delighted in me. The writer of Hebrews said it like this. In Hebrews 12, 2, he said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. 
I don't know if you've ever wondered, like, how in the world could Jesus endure the agony of the cross? How, how could he do that? How could he pray that prayer in the garden and say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done? How could he drink the cup of our suffering and our sin? Hebrews 12 tells us it was because of the joy that was before him. So what was the joy before him? It wasn't heaven. I mean, heaven's great, but Jesus had heaven before he went to the cross. Like he, didn't, he didn't leave heaven, go to the cross, just so he could get excited about going back to heaven. No, what he came to die on the cross for was to make a way so that us who are far from God could be brought near, so that we could be with him in heaven. That means the joy that was set before him is you. It's me. He had a vision of what would be the reality on the other side of the work of redemption. And it was us being together in his presence. You're the joy that is set before him. And so he loves his bride happily. He delights in her very presence. Fifthly, he loves her faithfully. He's faithfully devoted to the church. You heard it said in the worship Earlier, Jesus said to Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's faithful. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, and surely I will be with you always, even to the very ends of the age. Over and over, the scripture communicates the heart of God. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Can I, I just say back to the point of application, if there's any one thing that every Christian wife should be able to count on, it's marital fidelity. No perfect spouses, no perfect marriages, but the one thing we ought to be able to take to the bank is marital fidelity. Listen, the Bible doesn't give a lot of exceptions or good reasons for divorce. But this is one of them. He said, if, if you're unfaithful, you, you, you don't deserve to be married. You've broken the covenant. And that's not to say that God can't heal and restore and, and praise God when he does. But of, of all the few exemptions he gives for divorce, that's one of them. So all these five ways, they communicate a sacrificial love. And then let's just read a little farther in Ephesians 5 because he starts talking about not only a sacrificial love, but a sanctifying love. And that's a good Bible word. You're going to understand it when we read what Paul said here. After he said Christ loved the church and he gave himself for the church in verse 26 of Ephesians 5. He says he did it to make her holy and cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. This is a sanctifying love. What is he saying? He's saying Jesus cleanses the church. Jesus washes the church. He makes her holy to be presented as radiant. Maybe you didn't know this, but this is why brides traditionally wear white. Because marriage points back to Jesus. And it's rich with, with, with Christian imagery. And so you see that, that bride present herself to her husband on her wedding day, and she's, she's beautiful, and she's radiant, and she's without stain, without wrinkle, without any other blemish, spotless, pure, blameless. He says that's a picture of what the bride of Christ looks like. 
But how many of you know that are married that she doesn't get up and do all that every day? That, that dress is going in a box, man. It's like stored away somewhere or, or sold at a reuse it shop. I mean, so there, there's a work here that happens in the context of a relationship that Jesus is saying has to exist in a marriage. And the truth is, take your halo off this morning. We know us enough to know that we're not blameless. We're not without stain. We're not without wrinkle. We're not without blemish. We're not the radiant bride that Jesus sees. No, there's something that he has to do on our behalf. This is not who we are. This is how Jesus sees us. This is who we will be. And and so there's a, a beautiful thing that plays out in a Christian marriage where you're filled with the Spirit and submitted to Christ and each other out of reverence for the Lord. And the Bible word is justification. The Bible says we are justified in Christ. In other words, it's not that we're sinless or perfect or blameless or spotless. But because we're forgiven, the Bible says Jesus sees us justified. He sees us just as if I'd never sinned. That's justification. It's as if we hadn't blown it. When he looks down on us from heaven, he doesn't see all of our sin. He sees the blood of Jesus that covers our sin and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And Paul says that's what a Christian marriage looks like. That when you get up, you know, and it's, it's a Monday, and it's been a long weekend, And she's wearing the same sweatshirt she's wore for the last three days around the house. And she's got morning breath. She's justified. In your eyes and in your marriage, she's spotless. She's blameless. Doesn't matter if she burnt the chicken last night. She's holy. She's without wrinkle, without stain. And that's, that's what he's saying. This is what a, a Christian marriage looks like when we're surrendered to Christ and filled with his spirit and we agape one another. We see the absolute best, the glory and greatness in our spouse. There's a third kind of love that Paul mentions, and I'll give it to you quickly. And this is, this is what I'll call self-love. Because he says in verse 28, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body just as Christ does the church. So this is the golden rule of marriage. You shall treat your wife the way you treat yourself. In other words, he's saying, look, pay pay attention to her needs because we all know we pay attention to our own needs. We all know we pay attention to our own moods. When we're tired, when we're frustrated, when we're upset, when we're hungry, we're very aware. So Paul just says practically, if you would just treat your wife the way you treat yourself, she'd get five-star treatment. Because we're all selfish by nature, right? I, I told Day earlier, I said, I'm, I say earlier, it was a couple days ago. I said, I'm preaching on marriage this weekend. After 23 years, do you have any marriage tips you want to give everybody? And she's like, I don't know offhand, and, uh, and so then we started talking about something else, you know, conversation moves in a different direction, and, and we're talking about other stuff, and she starts telling me a story, and while, we're, while she's telling me the story, we're standing in the kitchen, I pick up a little brochure that was there, and I'm like flipping through it, and she just stops talking, and so I look up, and she goes, that's my marriage tip right there, that's my, I was like, oh, got me, got him. Yeah, I was like, oh, man, she got me. But you know what? It's true. Like, we want, we want people to pay attention to us when we're talking to them. 
We want to be treated the same way. And so Paul says, look, the way you love yourself, love your spouse. If you think your story matters, their story matters. Pay attention. And then then the last thing he says, I'm going to ask the musicians to come. And Kayla, would you come? I want to give you one practical little word here before our counseling session ends. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, here at the end of this little section on marriage. Paul says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, Jesus, that's a quote from Genesis that Paul says in Ephesians. Jesus also quoted that in Matthew chapter 19, but then he added these words in verse 6 of Matthew 19. He said, so they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, we often hear those words at the end of a, of a wedding. What God has joined together, let no one separate. And sometimes we just interpret that to mean don't get separated. <laughs> like, don't get a divorce. But there's more to it than that. When God said, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, there, there's some practical application. And it's not just about, like, avoiding conflict with monster-in-laws, you know? Like, hey, leave leave your mother, leave your father. Although I will say, there's a whole lot of marital issues that could be solved if the marital spat was dealt with in the marriage. Some people get into marriage, and they think they're going to have their first, you know, married fight, and then they discover, oh, shoot, this is tag team. You brought the whole family into this thing. It's a royal rumble now. I got to deal with father-in-law, mother-in-law, cousin-in-law, auntie-in-law, brother-in-law. And you got the whole family in it. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just remember when we're trying to work this out, we got to work this out. You got to leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife. But when God said that about Adam and Eve, they didn't even have parents. (laughs) So I think he was saying something more than just don't have conflict with your in-laws. I think there's a principle here. And I've seen a lot of couples get married and and they, they do fine when it comes to managing the new circle. Like we have a new family circle now and it's us. This is the nucleus. Not your parents, not my parents. It's us. And they do good in that way, but then they get busy with the career. Working the overtime. Late hours. And, and, and they've stopped leaving at quitting time and cleaving to their marriage. And so leaving and cleaving is not just about starting out right. It's about living in a healthy relationship. I've seen couples that, that everything was going great and they decided to build a family and they moved from marriage to the carriage. And, and then all of a sudden everything became about the kids. Instead of cleaving to each other, they're leaving for soccer practice or for band or for this kid or that thing or the science experiment. And all of a sudden, 18 years go by and you find yourself sitting at a table with somebody you haven't clung to in a long time. And it's like a worn out piece of Velcro. Like, I don't even know how to make this thing work anymore. So Paul is saying there's a pattern here for a healthy relationship. And it's that you continue to prioritize the greatest living illustration of Christ's love for the church, your marriage. Because there's nothing that's going to speak louder about the agape love of God than when you say, till death do us part, and you mean it. Better, worse, sickness, health, love, cherish, have, hold, all that. I'm in. 
I didn't fall in. I'm growing in it. I'm cultivating it. I decided I'm yours, you're mine. So we leave everything else and we cleave to that. So as we close this service today, I want to ask all over this room if we could stand. Because it doesn't really matter if it's this marriage relationship or if it's the, mar- the relationship with your children or, or with your co-workers or with your friends. Can I say this principle applies for every Christian and it's this. It begins with being filled with the Spirit and living our lives and our relationships out of reverence for Christ. So if you haven't submitted your life to Jesus Christ, you're going to struggle with all this other stuff. You might as well just go get you a magazine that says, you know, seven hacks for a happy marriage by Friday. Just, you know, because because God's blessed his plan. He's not trying to bless your plan. He's blessed his plan. And it begins with saying, Jesus, I submit myself to you so that all these other relationships can be lived out of reverence for Christ. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head with me all over this room. And would you just take a moment, make an altar right where you're at, right there with the Lord. If there's any area of your life that's not been fully submitted to him, that you say, Jesus, you're, you're in the captain's chair. You're in charge. I'm following your lead. You are the head of everything for the church. And Jesus, I believe today that you are in control for my good. I trust your plan. So I surrender my life completely to you. And Lord, I pray right now that we would be filled with the Spirit, that the Spirit of Jesus would just start to well up on the inside of us, that our thoughts would be redirected, that our attitudes would be kept in check. God, that our desires would be purified, that we would desire the things that you want for us. I want to encourage you right now, would you just express some...